Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hey, paranormal fans. <laughs> well, that's a nice intro. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I thought it was. <laughs> Is that a, a new character in the See You on the Other Side cast? Yeah, the, the creepy guy. Just, just the creeper comes and says, hey, paranormal fans. <laughs> Wendy, it was Friday the 13th on Friday. Did you do anything spooky? Not really on Friday, but as you know, Mike, yes. um, Thursday night, I went to the historic and uh, allegedly haunted Hotel Ruby Marie here in Madison, Wisconsin, to check it out for the first time. I've lived in Madison for half my life and driven past and walked past that place so many times, and I've never actually seen the inside. No, either have I. In fact, we and, and we've played in the building that the Hotel Ruby Marie is in a bunch of times because it used to be OK's Corral in that same building, and now it's the Essen House in that same building. So it's like I've been in that building a thousand times. But I've never actually been to the haunted hotel upstairs. No, and we've had several friends who have stayed there, and uh, some of whom had their own spooky experiences that may have been paranormal. Yeah. And so I was really excited to see it and to hear from the owner himself, who's had the place for like the last 30 years, to hear some of his own uh, stories and just what it's been through and who's been there and what kind of events have happened there that could possibly lead to some sort of paranormal activity there. Yeah, he was a really nice guy. Bob Worm was his name. Yeah. So probably whenever he goes out to the party or whatever and somebody yells, do the worm, he's like, oh yeah, he's like, that's mine. It's my dance. He owns it. See, and I kept thinking of Grey Worm from uh, Ah, Game Game of Thrones. Thrones. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Well, I don't think Bob Worm's a eunuch because his daughter was there at least. Oh no. Hey, like Grey Worm. Anyway, that was a lot of fun. We didn't see any haunted stuff when we were there. No, not that time around, but I think we should go back and do some investigating there. I agree. I agree. But you guys should check that out. The Hotel Ruby Marie in Madison. Uh, it's on a It's a really cool corner right by uh, Lake Monona and the Monona uh, Terrace Convention Center downtown. And we do have several haunted stories. And we even talk about some of them on the Madison Ghost Walk. That you can yes. see at madisonghostwalks.com. So anyway, so, so we did, yes, July 12th, we did a little investigation, checked out the haunted Hotel Ruby Marie. But then Friday, I didn't do anything scary. Friday, I didn't do anything scary either. And nothing weird happened, unfortunately. I was hoping, you know, I'd experience something that would give the day's name some justice. Well, we did have to cancel the Madison Ghost Walk. Oh, no. Oh, I didn't know that. Rainy. So right, it, like, oh. it started raining. The, the walk starts at 7.30, and so it rained right at quarter to eight. That's a bummer. And so we had four different cities going. We had Stillwater, Minnesota, Waukesha, Wisconsin, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and Madison. And Madison uh, got rained out. They're the ones that got the worst rain. Aww. But interestingly enough, our ghost host, Lisa, who's been on the show a bunch of times, and you guys, you guys have heard her if you listen to the show. Yeah, um, Lisa. Lisa's the host. And she mentioned... Uh, she sent me a text yesterday, and she's like, weird, I was looking back at my records, and it seems like this was the first Friday the 13th we had to cancel, but every the Friday the 13th tour we've had has had some kind of rain, bad weather, close call associated with it. Interesting. So I guess Friday the 13th is unlucky <laughs> for the Madison Ghost Tour. Well, next time it's a Friday the 13th, tell everyone to bring their umbrellas and their ponchos and, yes, you know. Experience a a soggy tour. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, the person we have on the podcast today, Scotty Roberts, we met him on Friday the 13th in May of 2016. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was a Friday wow. the 13th weekend because we uh, launched the St. Paul Ghost Walk launched that night and we had ghost tours in Madison. So that was a Friday the 13th weekend at a place called the Paradigm Symposium. And uh, that was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the Paradigm Symposium was a paranormal convention. We probably talked about it a thousand times in the podcast because it was such like a <laughs> seminal experience in it our was. lives. We met a lot of paranormal friends <laughs> yeah. at that event and we saw a lot of presentations that really got our gears turning, yeah, if you will. And, and presentations that eventually we, of people we've brought in the podcast podcast. Yeah. You know, I think that's been an exciting thing. It's been a lot of people we've brought in the podcast uh, from the Paradigm Symposium. And and I'll put a link in the notes so you guys can go back and listen to our recap because we were all juiced up when we got home and we talked about it. (laughs) 
And anyway, so Scotty Roberts was the driving force behind the Paradigm Symposium, and he's uh, Twin Cities based pretty much. He lives in Wisconsin, but Wisconsin is part of that uh, that Twin Cities metro area. Um, but he's over on the Wisconsin side. And he's an illustrator, paranormal adventurer. Uh, he's written books on Egypt. He's a really interesting guy. And he's got a brand new YouTube channel out called Adventure Town Communicate with Scotty Roberts. So we thought we'd talk a little bit about some of the adventures that he talks about on the Adventure Town Communicate. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different because instead of just playing the whole interview for you, um, Scotty was in the process of moving and he still generously decided to give us his time and talk to us. And so so he was at like a caribou coffee in Blaine, Minnesota talking to us. And so um, we cut up the interview a little bit because of some background noise and things like that. And we'll introduce a couple of segments and, and we'll come back out of it. So just kind of wanted to prepare you guys for a little bit of different kind of episode. But let's go to our talk with Scotty Roberts. As the host of Intrepid Radio, the publisher of Intrepid Magazine, the author of The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim, the untold story of fallen angels, giants on Earth, and their extraterrestrial origins, a graphic designer, artist, and the force behind Paranormal Conference, the Paradigm Symposium, you might be able to say that Scotty Roberts is a true Renaissance man. And with the launch of his YouTube channel, Adventure Town Communique, he's ready to start yet another trek into the weird. Joining us... From a fine caribou coffee. In what are you in Minnesota? Or you Wisconsin today, Scotty? Uh, I'm in Minnesota today. I think I think I'm in Blaine. If I haven't looked up, so I think that's where we ended up. Wait, wait a second, wait a second. You're not a Wisconsinite anymore? Is that what no, you're telling no, me? No, no, we still we're still a Wisconsin Wisconsin people. Uh, okay, we just moved good. out. We spent a week good. moving out. I, I've said tongue in cheek for years. We're about as mobile as the state of Texas. And uh, uh, it proved itself true again, we, even with downsizing this time. Uh, we filled a 20-yard dumpster with junk, and uh, uh, we still had a lot to move. Oh, but it took wow. a week, and we stayed at a hotel the last two nights with the swimming pool with the kids, and we crossed the border. We're over in Minnesota somewhere, I think in Blaine. But uh, we'll end up uh, still back. We were in Somerset. We'll be a few miles from there in New Rich, Wisconsin. That's awesome. I once uh, chased the Northern Lights in Blaine. Did you? Yes. I had a ranch. We had a 40-acre horse ranch back a few years ago, and I was driving home late one night, and I saw the northern lights come up, and they came all the way over the middle part of the sky. And I said, it's about 1130 at night, and I rushed home down the dirt road, and I woke up my now 26-year-old daughters. They were seven or eight at the time. And I woke them up and carried them downstairs and said, you got to see this. And we had Northern Lights going all the way over uh, the top. So it was pretty, pretty extraordinary. That is wow. awesome. So you guys not living in the northern part of the U.S., you're missing out on a lot of fun. That's uh, right. With the Northern Lights. But you're also missing out on winter. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, not so much fun. That's true. You don't have the, the uh, th this is the, the misnomer about Minnesota, Wisconsin, is that you live in the frozen tundra. You know, we wear our mucklucks year-round and air them out in the middle of July for a week, and then we have to put them back on again. Uh, well, what, we don't? The thing is, you know, we've got that frigid Arctic winter, but we also have damn near subtropical summers, you know, where it gets up into the hundreds and, and you got the high dew points like we just yep. just experienced for the last three days of my move. And uh, um, right. so, uh, but then you got the gorgeous transitional seasons. So. Spring and fall are nice. Well, well, Scotty, we were just uh, we were just reminiscing uh, this weekend at Haunted America uh, about hanging out a couple years ago at the first time we visited Haunted America, and it was a real treat uh, yeah. to hear you perform, and it was a real treat uh, to to watch your presentation. And Thank you. Uh, you know, we all were there, uh, Wendy, Allison, and I, and we all enjoyed it. And so, for the people who maybe haven't met you yet or don't know what you're all about. Can we get a little bit of Scotty 101 on how you got weird? How I got weird. Let's see. Well, I think we probably, those of us who are weird, probably all started that way in one respect or another. Um, I, I had said, uh, I was talking to, you remember Dan Madsen? Uh, he's the guy who published all the Star Trek and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and had the big magazine empire. Um, uh, Dan, I was talking to him once and I said, you know, the funny thing is we all started the same way. We all had curiosities about life out there, about weird stuff, about monsters, about ghosts when we were kids. And I said, I took it in one direction, maybe a more 
if you will, academic direction, uh, such as it is. And uh, Dan took it in a publishing direction. And so we were kind of laughing about that, how we all get our start the same way. Um, I said in the opening of the Nephilim book, in my introduction, I said, I think I spent far too many hours lying on the top of my mother's garage, hands folded behind my head, watching the stars at night, wondering what was out there, uh, dreaming of being a starship captain or something like that. And and Aww. so, uh, and as I grew up, that turned into, you know, you go into business, you do your stuff, you still mow the grass like everybody else. You have kids, you get married, maybe sometimes in the opposite order. And, uh, um, but there was a time where I was able to, uh, I worked for the, the Ghost Hunters as the um, editor-in-chief of their magazine, Taps Paramount. And that really introduced me to a lot of people that I didn't know in that field. And uh, then we launched Intrepid Magazine, of course, and Intrepid Radio. And John Ward and I started doing our travels to Egypt and all the stuff we did. And so how I became weird was just a, pro- a progression of, of having, having weird that you used to suppress so you could get a good job earlier in life. Uh, and that once you established yourself in your career, you could be as weird as you wanted to be. And, uh, oh, I didn't know you were weird yeah, like that. Yeah, you just kind of let it spill out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you believe in ghosts? <laughs> well, let me tell you a story. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's kind of how it started. It just progresses. You just do all the all the weird stuff, the ghosts, the paranormal. I don't know lots about ufology but, or ufology, uh, but I know people who do. And uh, um, so I haven't got – there are some things I don't know a damn thing about. And people will ask me, so what do you think of the uh, blah, 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 blah? And and I'm like, I haven't the slightest clue. Well, I thought you did ghosts and stuff. Well, yeah, but that's different. Uh, So I know things about things. I know enough about things to be in trouble most of the time. Um, And uh, uh, and I enjoy what I do. So that's how I got weird and stayed weird, I think. So when did you decide, I mean, deciding to be a... uh like you, you know, like you said, you had to suppress a little bit of weird to get into like a regular jobs and things like that. And I think we've all kind of just, you know, just been like, yeah, it's, you know, we don't talk about it that much or whatever. You but- know what I liken it to? You know what I liken it to? It's there's two things come to mind. One is you ever ask anybody during the last election uh, and they go, well, and they look over their shoulder and they go, I'm voting for Trump. And I go, what? And they go, I'm voting for Trump. I go, well, why are you whispering? I don't want anybody to know. And it's like, oh, okay, well, good luck. Um, and then it's the same with smoking, you know, the, the whole smoking. I've seen the change. I'm old enough to have experienced the change in smoking laws in the bars. We used to go listen to our favorite Irish bands and smoke, and uh, we can't do that anymore. And so it's like you're out in public now, and you, if you light up anywhere in public, you got to look over your shoulder and light up so nobody sees me do it. You know, so I, I kind of liken the, the, the paranormal and the whole ghost thing to that is that when you're uh, when people ask you, they go, so I hear you do some of this weird ghost stuff and you go, well, yeah, you can go one. Yeah, kind you know, I'm kind of it's it's a thing. It's a hobby. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I do. Uh, and uh, I tell people <laughs> not that it's a big thing that I, you know, that I admit it or not. But I say, you know what? I came into this whole thing as a believing skeptic. Meaning, I, I have a belief in this stuff, but I hadn't experienced it before. I was skeptical of it. Um, and it wasn't until I had my own experiences that I said, okay, now I've got something to go on. Uh, I've always said, you know, I, I, I'm a pragmatist. I, I like to, if I, can, if I can't see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, talk to it, it doesn't exist. Um, it's hard for me to put, put faith in something, in other words, trust that something exists. So... Um, uh, it took that, I think, to really seal the deal for me, even though I was one of those believers. And, you know, when I was a kid, I mentioned being a kid, you have those curiosity. I was scared to death of the dark. Um, I was scared. I grew up in the dark shadows um, era. You know, I was a, a kid in the 60s, and I did the coming of age in high school in the 70s. And uh, while I was a kid, we'd watch dark shadows, you know, vampires, Barnabas Collins, werewolves, witches, and uh, I couldn't walk down the street at night. I had a, a paper route when I was like eight or nine years old. I, I've got a son who's just turning nine. I thought I would never send him out to deliver papers on his own. But I was a kid and we all had paper routes. And 
I remember we had the morning, the Sunday morning paper, and we had, if you grew up near the Minneapolis area, the Twin Cities, we had the big, thick Sunday papers, and you'd get these metal yellow carts, two-wheel carts, that you could hook up to your bicycle or you could drag them behind you as you walk. And you'd fill them with the Sunday morning papers to deliver them. And uh, we'd walk around, and I got to tell you, I would drag that thing from street lamp to street lamp. I would run with that cart behind me because it was deathly afraid of the dark until I hit that nice iridescent yellow pool of light at the next street light. And, uh, and there I would stand and catch my breath and run to the next. And, you know, that I grew out of that. The more curious I was about things, now there's very little about the dark that scares me. And I like to say, and I said I'd got to knock on wood when I say this, um, there's not much that can scare me in that whole paranormal realm anymore. That doesn't mean I can't be startled. Um, I don't want something hovering over me at night and waking me up. I'd probably pee my bed. Um, but, you know, uh, for the most part, things don't frighten me that much anymore. And it's like nobody, you know, if you're with a little group of people, like, well, we got to go back into that room and there's no light in it. And I'm like, come on, let's go. That's what we're here for. Boom, let's go. Um, or I just turn on a flashlight. Like ghosts can't talk to you with a flashlight on. No, because um, because you don't have to be afraid of the dark anymore, right? Because right. you got the that's light. Right. I mean, that's. I don't think all ghosts thrive on your fears either. They thrive on your attention. They they need your attention. They want to talk to you. They need. You. Uh, and they I sound found, like my ex girlfriends. <laughs> like who? <laughs> like my ex girlfriends. Oh, like they, there you go. They thrive on my attention. They thrive on making me feel bad. <laughs> there it is. It could be in the dark. It could be in the daylight. <laughs> now you started out in divinity school with something so you got into there and so how do you move from divinity school to reptilians well i think that there there is a connection underneath it all um when i started in the seminary i went to a bible college and then i went on to theological seminary um in the very conservative fundamentalist baptist setting and uh uh, I was never Catholic, you know. I I couldn't do the celibacy, <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I was in a Baptist seminary, and um, uh, the things that you believe by faith within the faith, it's not that different than saying I believe in this. I'd get into arguments with people over the years about. Well, I believe in God and the Holy Spirit and all of this. And, you know, you are ghosts, you are of the devil and this and that. I'm like, well, you know, and they don't believe in certain things. And I said, you know, um, uh, if you can believe in God and that he has a Holy Ghost, a Holy Spirit, I said, it's not a stretch to say you can believe in other spirits as well. Uh, I try to keep it civil when I talk about these things. Um, at the same time, belief is something that takes faith. When somebody says, oh, do you believe, uh, you know, the president's doing a good job? And I say, I don't have to believe it. Belief is an act of faith. I, I either watch and I say yes, or I watch and I say no. Um, pardon me, somebody's having coffee made up or something. <laughs> it sounds like a rocket taking <laughs> off in my head. Right <laughs> I was going to say, somebody's murdering so, a latte. Yeah, yeah. And so... Uh, um, uh, in seminary, there were certain things I learned that it brought up a lot of questions for me, theologically, um, and when it came to my faith. And one of the first big questions I had, believe it or not, was what I wrote my first book on, which was the Nephilim, because we had that passage that said in the book of Genesis uh, uh, that uh, the Nephilim came down to the earth and intermingled with the daughters of men, or it says the sons of God came down intermingled with the daughters of men and had children with And it talks about the Nephilim. And uh, in the Hebrew, it says, it says, the B'nai Ha'elohim came down and intermingled with the daughters of Adam, or the Hebrew word for men. And uh, uh, the B'nai Ha'elohim, Elohim being the name for God, that's used 3,000 times in the Old Testament, which means by literal translation, 3,000 times he used his name in the Old Testament. Elohim is Elohim, him being a plurality. It means God of many gods, um, or God amongst many gods. And then the sons of God were simply the Bene Ha Elohim. It's like saying O'Brien in the in the uh, 
and the Irish, the son of. Sure. These were the sons of the god of many gods. And so that prompted questions for me. I, I said to my seminary professors, now you tell us language means something. In the Hebrew, this says this about the Elohim. It says this about the human women. And I, I said, who are these guys? Who are the gods of many gods? Oh, you know, Scotty, what that text is really telling us is that it was the sons of the men who were the aristocrats who built the school of the prophets, and they went actually literally down into the valley slumming amongst the common women and had wives with them. And I said, really? That's what it says? That's what it really means? I said, so why does it call them Elohim? It does not call them Adam like it does the females. Uh, and uh, he says, well, you we don't talk about that stuff so much. Don't make trouble. And uh, it was, you know, it was it was a friendly don't make trouble. I wasn't being censured or anything. But, uh, wow, you really are a troublemaker, are you? You want to know that stuff. And I said, yeah, I want to know. But that was one of the first things that really drove me to question things. Well, now, wait a minute. If this we're not talking about in full, uh, we want to hide that in a, in a way, you know. Uh, why... Uh, are there other things that were hiding? And of course, as the years went by, I did a lot of research and study, and I found it. Believing in what I was believing was merely an act of faith. Uh, it wasn't I was believing because we really knew anything special or knew more than the other guys, the Jews or the Muslims or anybody or the Buddhists or anybody else. So um, I, I had a big problem with that. And uh, so that uh, really set me adrift. And uh, I, I really backed out of the uh, um, ministry after that. Um, although, I used to say I haven't thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Maybe I have to a certain extent. Um, I still have problems discarding the notion that Jesus is the Son of God. But then if I say that, um, right away the first question comes back. Who were these guys in the book of Genesis that came down and intermingled with the daughters of men? They were the sons of God, the Elohim. Uh, so if Jesus himself was a son of God. Uh, I started looking into all that, and it's, he's one of the Elohim, one of the sons of God. It went, and, and it just opened up a whole can of worms for me. And so I, I needed to, I, just, I backed out of it. So, yeah, that's where I got my start. There's the long answer. Got my start in theological seminary. You know, I think that's really powerful because it goes to show that to get to these stretches of our imagination and to go find the truth somewhere, you have to be willing to say like, okay, words matter. Well, in the, when, especially in uh, fundamentalist faiths, that the Bible is it. You know, there's no Pope to come out there and say things like, it's a cool now, man. Like I'm down with this. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, we don't have that. <laughs> exactly. So it's, the Bible is the, is the word. Oh, no, regarding that of Scotty Roberts, he ain't going to be canonized anytime soon. <laughs> so, so don't worry. So this next story that Scotty tells, uh, we actually heard it from the first time from a couple of the other guys that were on this particular adventure with him. So this is Scotty's rendition of events on what happened uh, at the ghost story. We originally talked about it in our recap of the Paradigm Symposium when we, we were talking about it. But here you go with Scotty's rendition uh, when they visited an old abandoned mental asylum in Minnesota and what they heard. So like uh, John Ward and Rocky Stucci and I, we did some things out in the woods at a place in Faribault, Minnesota, which was uh, an old, uh, it, and it's interesting, these names. There was an old institution down in uh, Faribault built in the 1880s. It was called something like, because I don't remember the exact name, but it was something like, you know, the home for imbeciles and feeble-minded people or something like that, something you could never, could you imagine now going up to a facility uh, we've just founded the home for imbeciles and feeble-minded people. Yeah. Uh, politically I live correct. there. <laughs> I live there. <laughs> Why, I'm the boss. Yeah. All um, right. I, who do you think's uh, feeble-minded around here, peeps? So there was an old boys' farm that was attached to it. And all we had, John had pulled up a 1914 um, map of the place. And we were out in this wooded area in Faribault, Minnesota. And we're finding the foundations and stuff like that, and old standing concrete structures and things like that that are all overgrown. Uh, we found an old basketball hoop in the middle with large growth trees ar around it. And uh, 
it just been standing there rotting in the dirt or in the forest and the forest grew up around it and there was a place and we're broad daylight and we hear a woman's voice talking to us on the wind and uh, um, things like that and people skeptical friends of mine will say oh well you know you just really wanted to see it go so you really kind of manufactured that and I asked my friend I said do you think I'm such a rube and such an idiot that <laughs> I need to, to to hear or see a ghost so bad that I'll manufacture it in my imagination I said I'm not researching this I'm not trying to find whether or not it's there I'm not out trying to have an experience. Please take me to the aliens, you know? I don't do that. Uh, so uh, we heard this. Rocky heard it. John heard it. And uh, we've even got it on recording. It's, it's, it's on my YouTube channel. Uh, but we, we started doing all this kind of stuff and investigating. There are places we investigated where we got a uh, little house in South Minneapolis. We got noises like you've never... I don't know if I ever played it for you guys. But... Uh, um, uh, we're in this old house, and uh, we're getting EVPs left and right. And it's a house that's one of the oldest houses in South Minneapolis. Down, if you know Minneapolis, down by the Lakes District, down by uh, Lake Calhoun area. And uh, um, a woman who is on the Minneapolis City Council actually lives there and uh, <clears throat> grew up in that house, and she wanted to move out of the house. There was just too much activity going on for her. She knew Rocky. Rocky came and investigated. He brought John and I in. The house is empty now. They've painted it all, and it's all really nice and fresh. And uh, all the furniture is out, and she was going to put it on the market. And we're getting all kinds of EVPs. And we're down in the basement. And this you may have heard this story if you didn't hear the recording. Um, it was uh, John and Rocky and I down in the basement, stairway down the kitchen, from the kitchen. And all the lights are on. You know, it's 10 o'clock at night, and... We hear this big bang, and it was like, uh, and it made the house shake. And uh, I remember I stood up and I went, oh, hello, I went kitchen, and I started running up the steps. John was behind me, Rocky behind him, and uh, we got upstairs, and there's a recorder that had been left recording up there. And uh, we were trying to find the source of this. Was it a slamming door? Was it a, a window dropping with the old, you know, casements? Was it, what was it? It sounded from the downstairs as if somebody had tipped over a metal, uh, one of those steel scaffoldings onto the wood floor. Just bang. And so we didn't hear anything else uh, audibly until we played back the recording, which is the case in all of these. And we heard... Um, and I, I would play it for you if it gets right here on my computer, but I probably can't play it for you so you can hear it. Uh, but we, we heard a click, 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 bang, almost like a sonic boom. And uh, you hear us running up the steps, and you hear us looking around, and I say, if anybody's there, you want to talk to us? And uh, is that a sign that you want to talk? And you hear this huffing. It goes in stereo from right to left. It goes, Welcome. Just like that, and uh, we I heard do it. remember. Yeah, you remember that. I do one? remember you sharing that. I think maybe at the Paradigm Symposium or, I, or we probably did places. at the Paradigm Symposium. It, it was, was terrifying sounding. I think it, it was, was during. Ro- I think it was during Rocky's uh, presentation. Yeah, because he I, oh. it was Rocky's. So we heard the other side too, and he obviously he makes Scotty sound like he pooped his pants. But oh yeah, well he <laughs> he said I don't know if you can can I can I use a swear word on your uh, show? Uh, sure, Rocky we'll figure said, it out. Rocky said he was the third one coming up the steps. I was first. And he says, yo, he says, you know, he says, John was right behind Scott. He says, if he could have, if he could have run up through Scotty's ass and out his mouth and out the door, he says, he'd have done it. But uh, John's, John's famous line there. I said, hello, kitchen. And uh, And we ran up to the kitchen. And John, you hear John's famous utterance, get me out of this f***ing house. <laughs> so there you go. Quite an experience. It was, it was a good experience. You know, we had, uh, it was that year that uh, Barry Fitzgerald was here for the Paradigm Symposium, the year before, 2014, before uh, you guys were there. And uh, um, Barry listened to that, and he said, he says, I've heard stuff like this in the caves in Ireland. You hear that big bang, and he says, the only thing I've ever been able to attribute it to, he says, it's almost like a spiritual sonic boom. He said, there's so much spiritual activity, just bam, just releases. 
And he says, that's all I can. He wow. says, I can't tell you that's what it is. He says, that's, that's what I've come to conclude. So, uh, so it's a very interesting experience with those boys. And here is the actual EVP that Scotty picked up at that event. Now, Scotty talks about another EVP he gets here of some Frenchman that he also heard in that same location. (laughs) Oh, here it is. uh. We also got a couple of others that night. We had two guys talking to each other, two ghosty characters, ghost spirits, interdimensional, whatever. This house was supposedly built by French Canadians in the 1850s. And uh, John and I, you could hear us in the background, we're talking. And he said, this was a brothel at one time. And he says, and we got a little locker room. And she said, you know, she's like, she's wearing, I, said, I see her, she's wearing a red dress and she's riding this guy. And I go, oh, she's riding him, eh? You know, and it was one of those, we did a little locker room exchange and uh, um, of laughing. And you heard somebody hushing us over us. And then when we're done talking, two guys talk to each other. One we could not make out. There was a cadence that was like, like that. And the other guy goes, Mandu, in French. My God. And he gets a little, like Frenchmen do. Sorry, Frenchmen. You could hear them. Their voices were echoing off the wooden floors and the walls, just like ours were. But they weren't there. So, interesting stuff. And oh la la. Here's the EVP. So, if you see the computer right now, <laughs> if you have to give it and see that computer right now, I'm going to realize what I do. <laughs> So that was some pretty fun evidence uh, that Scotty got when he was out there. Really cool and and spooky. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I love it. (laughs) Okay, now this next part of the conversation, Scotty was asked a question by Allison where she said, well, if you're not quite a skeptic and you're not ready to just believe anything, what's something that you think you know is true? And he goes into one of the experiences he had when he was in Egypt. Now, one of the first things we noticed about Scotty uh, when we met him is that he looks, you know, he dresses like an Indiana Jones type of adventurer. Would you he not does. agree? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So he's got a, he, he, I think he's sponsored by a hat company too, that he's got a special kind of fedora he wears. Yeah, and a real everything. sharp looking hat. Yeah. And so, I mean, he looks like a kind of adventurer Egyptologist you would see in the mummy movies, things like that. And so uh, he you know, talks a lot about his experiences in Egypt, and he did write a book about his theory on who he thinks the historical Moses is. And he wrote it with his partner, uh, Dr. John Ward, his, his good buddy, that they do a lot of adventure stuff together. And uh, Dr. Ward is an Egyptologist or an archaeologist, and he believes that the historical Moses is a different character. But Scotty has his own idea who he thinks the historical Moses is. And that's this guy named Senmut, who was a advisor to the a female pharaoh in Egypt back right when, the, you know, the, the biblical times when the Hebrews were slaves. So we're going to let Scotty set this up as um, a little bit on the Senmut character as who might be the, the Moses of the Old Testament. And then he goes into the strange experiences that he had while they were doing the research on this Senmut person. So you got to check it out. So real quick, let's give a, give a quick background on that for people who might not be familiar with it. Or um, So just, uh, just a, a quick 101 on the Senmut as Moses deal. Sure. Um, Senmut was a uh, grand vizier uh, during the 18th dynasty uh, beneath the pharaoh Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut was uh, her, her regnal name. She was Matkari. Um, a female pharaoh. And uh, in a sense, she usurped the pharaohship from her stepson, who was about three years old at the time of her husband's death. Um, 
And uh, uh, so she took over as Pharaoh for over 20 years. And she had somebody that was in her household, um, a man that all we know about him from Egyptian history was that uh, he was born a commoner. Now, you start thinking of the, the Exodus story and the they were uh, Hebrew slaves, the Israelites. Uh, that's as common and base as you can get in Egyptian culture. But there are some questions. Did they exist as a slave caste or a commoner's caste, a working class caste, and so on? A lot of those questions come up, uh, which were very convenient for, for my character. But Senenmut was a man that she raised to great status at Shepsut. Uh He became the Grand Vizier, which in Egyptian culture was... Pharaoh in the place of Pharaoh, meaning uh, she's off the throne. He could have his foot on these one step off the throne. He can rule Egypt in her in her absence. Um, he also had 91 other royal titles conferred on him by her. Uh, the high priest of Amun, the, uh, uh, all these different titles that come with those, those nobility, uh, those positions of great nobility. And one of the titles was the hereditary crown prince of Egypt. And uh, he was also the Grand Royal Architect. He built her big funerary temple and all many structures around Egypt during the 18th dynasty, during her reign. And uh, right around the time he's he would have been 40, he disappears off the scene of Egypt. Now, this is a man who is a great nobleman, uh, pharaoh in the place of pharaoh, hereditary crown prince of Egypt, and there's nothing said about his disappearance. He's gone. Um, he left behind two glorious tombs uh, in Egypt, which you can go visit today. Um, but there's no no mummy, no no word of whatever happened to him. Um, and Hatshepsut dies around the same time. And uh, her stepson, who's now about 29 or 30, comes to the throne. And he starts doing what in Egyptian archaeology you can look back at. As you see, it's called erasure. Uh, the old pharaohs, they would usurp a building and they would scrape the reliefs off and they would carve their own reliefs with their own name in it. You can sometimes find this in, in infrared photography. And uh, so Tutmosis III was the, the next pharaoh. He eliminates her images and so on. Then he leaves off after a while. He's just establishing on the pharaoh. And uh, there was not a lot of hostility there, by the way, because he grew up, uh, even though she took over in his stead, he grew up, he was the general of all the Egyptian armies and he never led a coup or anything peaceful time during her reign. So, But he takes over as his rightful stead. And uh, when he comes 40 years later, he's in his dotage now, and his son is taking over, Amenhotep II, 18 years old. Amenhotep II finishes the job of wiping out all the images of Hatshepsut, and at the same time, he wipes out all the imagery of Senenmut. Anyway, uh, he buries nine of his statues in a pit. Um, and my speculation, and there's a lot more to this in the book, was he did this because Senenmut returned 40 years later as Moses in accordance with the biblical calendar. When he was eight, he came back. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, Hatshepsut also gave Senenmut his name. Now, I believe Hatshepsut was the young girl who found Moses in the Nile. As a baby. You remember the story? Oh, Mom yeah. puts him in a basket floats him down the Nile. And a lot of people deny that. They go, well, that's just a retelling of the story of Osiris, you know, where they cut him up in pieces and float him down the basque in the Nile. And I said, have you ever stopped to consider that maybe these Hebrew slaves were so Egyptianized, they knew these stories. And if she knew where the royal princess was bathing on the Nile every day, on probably a back channel of the Nile by the palace, do you think that by floating the baby down the water in a basket, she was playing into Egyptian religion and mythology. Herself. Strategy. Mm -hmm. I love it. It was strategy. And it also says, she didn't say she floated him, it said she placed him amongst the reeds in a basket on the Nile. And the, the Pharaoh's daughter, the young princess, finds it. Well, uh, her father was Tutmosis I. This all happened during the Tutmosis dynasty uh, uh, in the 18th century. Tutmosis I, the second, the third, Hatshepsut was the daughter of Tutmosis I. And about the year that Moses would have been born by the biblical calendar, um, she would have been about seven to ten years old. Now, the biblical story tells us she returns him to his mother to be weaned until she is old enough to claim him as her own. 
And then she eventually does that. And then the story in the Bible skips up to when he's 40. Um, I think it's very interesting to find out that Hatshepsut named, gave Senenmut his name. We don't know what his birth name was. But she called him Senenmut, which means mother's brother. I, your mother, am elevating you to the status of brother to the gods with me. So she, as his mother, his stepmother, she was not, he was not her son. They had, there was a big thing about them. They had a love affair. They went on for years and years and years. Uh, as a matter of fact, the only inscriptions of Senenmut, images of him left on her temple. If you go to Dier el Bahre in Luxor, you see her temple. They had the big stone doors that would open up, and there were big hinges built in stone. And when the doors were open, you couldn't see what was inscribed on the walls behind them. But when the doors were closed to this Holy of Holies, nobody's in there, there's two inscriptions down by the corner hinges that were behind the doors of Senenmut, both on each side. And it says something like, Senenmut, uh, the only beloved to his queen, you know, or to, to Hatshepsut and so on, and it's a very loving inscription, uh, like a dedication of his own to her. And his, his own tomb is outside of her temple. Outside of her temple, there's a big cliff range, and on the other side is the Valley of the Kings. Uh, her tomb is there. If you go to the bottom of Hatshepsut's tomb, you were to take a cutaway. Valley of the Kings here, and then her tomb is over here. Senenmut has a tomb here, and you go all the way down inside to the chambers. Her tomb is in the Valley of the Kings. It goes all the way down, and their two chambers come right together. Uh, which is very interesting uh, for the the love story that uh-huh. was supposedly there. I had an experience there. Um, I believe I had a I had a couple of visions there, which I am not given to that stuff. I don't have visions. I am not intuitive in that sense. Uh, I am not uh, a medium or anything like that. But I had a couple of different experiences there. Um, I had a good friend, Chris Conway. Um, he's a Scottish medium. You may have seen him if you ever watched the old British show Most Haunted. Oh yeah. Um, they had uh, Derek Akora, and after Derek Akora was let go from the show, they had a series of, of, of psychics that come. Chris Conway did that show for I think two seasons as a Scottish. He was Scottish medium, and uh, he came to Egypt with John and me when we brought some other people along with us. And he sat at a place where a year earlier at Saqqara at the stepped pyramid of Doja, I had what was clearly a vision. And uh, I came out of that going, I asked John, I said, is that a vision? And I just had, it only lasted a couple of seconds. But I was sitting there and there's this, about the size of, think of a soccer field, an enclosed soccer field. And there were temples along the sides of this uh, that were all in ruins now. And the step pyramid is back behind, you see it built up behind there. And there's rubble all over, and I'm sitting on a stone at the end of this, and suddenly everything shifted, and I saw what it would have looked like, you know, 3,000 years ago. Um, the light shifted, and it was like late afternoon, there were torches burning, still sun in the sky. I could smell incense, I could hear chanting, and I saw a line of priests, uh, uh, bald, no shirts, with the white kilts on and carrying trays with different ornaments on them, and they were all kind of walking toward me. And about 20 feet from me, they, they turned and started walking toward one of these little cove temples on the, on the right. And uh, um, I saw this all take place in front of me. And uh, uh, then I kind of blinked, and I was, I was back, and I had tears in my eyes. Not of emotion, but just that, you know, when you get sh- like shivers up your back, and all your eyes will water. And it was kind of like that. I'm like, wow. And uh, um, I asked Chris about that. And uh, did you yeah. have a hand up, Wendy? <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious about the, the vision. Like, did it, it felt like it, I mean, it, it looked just like anything else physical that you would see normally. It wasn't just like, it, uh, it, when you imagine something, you know. It looked, uh, it, that's the, that's the thing. I come out of those. And when I have something like that, what's imagination or daydreaming versus right. seeing something? For me, I'm not given to that stuff. So, um, when it happens, it's different. Okay. It's, um, um, I, it, I definitely felt like I was somewhere else and it was just a few seconds that I remember it taking place. And when I came back, I'm like, I'm in bright sunshine again. I'm like, like, that was weird. What was that? Uh, am I daydreaming? Did I fall asleep? 
Um, you know, those are the first things I ask myself. And, uh, um, but it's interesting. I sat there a year later with Chris Conway. And I said, I had something happen to me right here sitting on this stone last year. And it was Chris that said, uh, he says, there's a man that's attached to you here. And he said, uh, he's trying to get his name. He said, he won't give me his, his name. He says he, he says, he doesn't want to give his name until he knows he can trust you. And um, he said he was, he was getting doctor, physician, or theologian, or even something like that associated with someone 3,500 years ago. He's an ancient man. And he says he's here in, in his Scottish way. He says, and he's, he's wetted a nappy, which is a diaper. <laughs> and I said, great. I said, you connect with an ancient man and he's in a diaper. I said, you think it might be a loincloth? And he said, oh, that's probably it. And, uh, um, and uh, so we got a little more information from this guy. He said he would never leave Egypt but that he would be attached to me whenever I came to Egypt and uh, that he'd been attached to me for a year and uh, and so on. Now, this is Chris, and people can believe what Chris is saying is truthful or not. I happen to know the man, so I gauge belief in what somebody says by whether or not I find them credible as an individual. Um, And Chris is wholly credible. And uh, so we were a week later at the Tomb of Sentiment, and I'd had that experience there the year earlier, where I'm standing in front of the tomb of Senenmut, and uh, John and Maria were with me, and and uh, they went up and out. There were carved staircase. You can get up out of the it's an open gully. It's like a big ditch up along the cliffs, alongside the road going into into uh, Hatshepsut's temple. And this is where his tomb is, and. Uh, um, I was at the entrance of Sun and Mut's tomb, and I remember I was lighting a cigarette. It was that nonchalant, and I said something to the effect of, so, uh, Sun and Mut, are you really Moses? And I said, Moses, are you Sun and Mut? Did you even exist? And it just, like, out of left field, it was just barraged with this. You can't explain it as anything but a wind, and energy. Uh, uh, um, and I dropped my cigarette in the sand, and I was weeping. And just, just rolling off my chin. And I, I remember yelling out loud and flailing my arms. I go, what the F? <laughs> and, I said, uh, and, I, and I said the word. I didn't just say that. <laughs> right. And, and I, I, said, I said, all right. I said, what, it, what, what toying with my imagination is going on right now? And I said, why the F am I crying? And uh, I said, I'm common sense to you. I, I, you know, it's like, I, I, th- I think now it just popped into my head. If you're an old Star Trek fan, it's like watching Spock in the old episode where he was overcome with emotion for something and he's breaking down and he kept, he'd pound his fist. And he'd say, say one times one is two, two times two is four. And he'd go through this and try to get his logical mind to reconnect. And that's that's what I felt. I, I was almost like trying to get my logical mind to reconnect after the experience. And now, when I was at a year later with Chris Conway at that place, I said, something happened here as well. And, and he said, he says, your man is here too, that we met in Saqqara. And he gave his name, Diaper which man. I still can't. Not Diaper Man. <laughs> the Nappy Sad Man. To say. It was something with an unk, unk in it, you know, it was, uh, it, uh, and, and Chris said, I don't even quite get the name. Uh, I can't pronounce it. And uh, he was offering me, through Chris, uh, a big red ruby. He says, he's, he's presenting you with this red ruby. It's about this big, about the size of a, uh, of a China teacup uh, uh, um, saucer. And it's gold rimmed. And he's handing this to you. He wants you to have this. I said, what does that mean? And Chris says, I don't know. And by then, John's calling us. We've got a group there that we had taken. And, and so we tell John what Chris saw. And John had been a part of this Hermetic Order of Luxor, which is a revival of the Hermetic Order of Thebes, ancient uh, Hermeticism, blah, blah, blah. And uh, John stopped and he said, he told you his name was what? And he says, nobody should know that and uh, then uh, we told him about the ruby, and John's eyes widened. He said, 
Do you know the man who founded the revision, the revival of this order back in the 1800s had as a symbol of this group a giant ruby that was the size of a saucer, wow. and he had lost it in a shipwreck. And he says, people have been for 100 years looking for this ruby. He says, he offered it to you? I said, yeah. And so, in essence, what it did, it, it had connected John and I in, in very weird ways. And uh, so... That, to me, lent veracity to what had been said. And wait, real and quick, see, hermeticism. Yeah. Is it a kind of mad... Like, so explain hermeticism real quick for people who might not be familiar with it's it. It's really the, the study of ancient mysteries, kind of putting it all together. If you're a hermeticist, uh, you're looking into the... In, into the it, it's, you almost can't use the word the hermetics, the mysteries of spirituality, the mysteries of belief, of magics, of things like that. And it's all put together under that... that Banner of Hermeticism. Uh, so uh, John Dee, uh, during the time of Elizabeth the uh, First of England, was a big Hermeticist. Uh, he was allowed to not be burned at the stake. Uh, she allowed him because he was like the Queen's astrologer in a way. But uh, he was a historical Hermeticist, and uh, there's something more to it than saying, "I read fortunes." You know, there, there's more yeah. to it than that. Sure. Uh, it's, it's a lot so, deeper. So are we talking ceremonial magic? Because it comes from Hermes, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Uh, there's ceremonial magic attached to it. Uh, it's like John. John does stuff. Uh, my good friend John Ward does stuff associated with Hermeticism that I know nothing about. Um, and uh, uh, can lapse into that pretty easily when he's trying to explain something. Um, uh, we did some scrying at uh, one of the tombs. It's one of the structures there at their own uh, archaeological site uh, with a black onyx, highly polished black onyx mirror. And uh, um, it's another archaeologist there. It was a Frenchman. Very, uh, very much detached from all the spirituality stuff, but understands it, gets it. And John and I, and we all looked into this thing and did that. And there was definitely stuff that that uh, was felt and seen. So, uh, more so for them than me at the time. So, uh, uh, yeah, wow. that's that's what <laughs> all of this stuff. Uh, and so the experiences I've had in Egypt, that's what puts, and I think it started from your question, Allison, uh, what do I know? <laughs> uh, yeah. What I know for sure is that even though I can't define who or what he is, that this man, ancient man, exists. <laughs> Um, I've seen right, so here. that you've you had some experiences I that experience. you know they, yeah, we don't we don't have a reference for them, so it can be hard to explain. But but you right. know that that you entered into some kind of non ordinary reality, and you know you go through your workaday life, and it's a certain way, and right. we all we all do this, right? And then how do you know when something extraordinary is happening? Well, because it's not like 99.9% of the rest of your life. It's like asking the question, how do you know you love somebody? Um, You know. Uh, There's a difference between, what if you went up to your potential spouse or loved one and said, I I believe I love you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that, would go over like a a deflated (laughs) balloon. Uh, I believe I love you, um, but I know I love you. I know this. This is something, there are certain things that click over on the inside that you know are different than other things. And for me, these some of these experiences were different. I can also say I've had things that I can explain away by physics or by imagination or whatever. You know, you know uh, I'm explaining that one. I'm not taking that as a real experience because of this, this, and this. Um, so th- these are very subtle, uh, yes. very subtle landscape that you're navigating here. When, when you were sc- real quick, though, let's go back there. When you were scrying, um, did other people see anything in that black onyx? So scrying is when you're looking at like a black mirror or a black onyx or like a crystal or something, and you people see things inside of it. It could be your bathroom mirror, you know, if you do it right. Um, and but did people see Bloody Mary in there or what? It's that kind of thing. I think that's the joke really raises off of that, the mythology. Um, it's when you scry, the idea is you can look into your own eyes, and you, it's a staring. It's like a meditative staring, and uh, you'll start to see other things going on in the back. 
And so did, did anybody else, when they were doing that, did they see anything that connected more stuff that even convinced you more that your experience was genuine? We, we really didn't spend enough time doing it. Um, uh, what hit me was that you had these dyed-in-the-wool scholars uh, were seeing things, feeling differences. Hmm. Um, and, uh, but we didn't stay with it long enough that afternoon, and we never did it again after that. John just brought it in. It was the space of Horemhead, uh, which was going in uh, to the Holy of Holies of this particular shrine and setting it up there and staring into it. I didn't get as much as they did. The kind of feeling I had was a feeling I couldn't right away say I know for sure anything's really happening, but it was that feeling of, it's like if you close your eyes, and I do this sometimes, and I, I'm not a good meditator. I'm too damn analytical when I meditate, but so I can't ever seem to click in, but there are times where I close and I feel, they talk about that third eye thing. And I used to do, and I would feel pressure here. I would feel a pressure in the front of my head and I would look for that if I was trying to meditate or read cards or do something like that. And so I'd feel that pressure. And uh, it's almost like everything was different around me. You could feel that there was a difference. And of course, what I have to do at that point is realize what the mind is capable of. On a, on a physics side or a, or a psychological side, we can create a lot with our minds. So I want to make sure I'm not fooling myself into believing I'm doing something that's anything special. Uh, so it, when it had the other personalities involved, um, you remember I told you this guy that's supposed to be, you know, 3,500 years ago, Chris told me about him at Saqqara and at Sunderman's tomb, offered me the ruby, and there was the one time where John and... Rocky and I were going to that house I mentioned where we got the recordings of the Big Bang and all that. And uh, Rocky suggested, he says, you know, why don't you, if you want to pray or something while we're driving there for protection or whatever, do your own thing. And so I'm sitting there, we're sitting in quiet, we're driving down the freeway and and uh, I just closed my eyes and I, I actually called out to this guy. I didn't, couldn't pronounce his name. I said, look, if you're really there and you really exist and you're with me, they said you'd only be in Egypt. I said, do you have the ability to be here in Minnesota with me? I said, if we're going into something that's dangerous, and I said, you're really there to protect me and all these other things I've been told about. I said, if you're there and you find affinity with me in the way we think and the way we logic through things, I said, do you have the ability to be with me now? If I need that kind of protection on a spiritual edge? And literally, I will tell you, I felt like... It's like a lot of the Egyptian statues you see. And I felt as if his head was on the top of my head, his chin on the top of my head, and his arms wrapped around my shoulders. Oh. It was like enfolding somebody Aww. like that. And uh, I have a statue of sentiment um, that John actually had made for me from an artisan in, uh, in Luxor. Uh, he carved out of stone the one statue of sentiment where there's a block with hieroglyphs all over it sentiment's head with the with the, the scarf uh, triangular looking scarf uh, 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 and he's got the young head of the young princess in front of him and that's kind of what it was like and there were many statues of sentiment holding Neferi the young princess where he's clasping her or got his arms around her like this and uh, so it was that kind of a thing and I said afterwards I said I felt this and I can ex not explain it um, I have to put it in the category of belief because I believed it was real. Uh, as, uh, and it wasn't a wanting to that was driving that. It was something beyond my simple... Because I've been in lots of experiences where I wanted something to manifest, and it didn't happen. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but this one, it actually happened. So I think that this guy who said he was with me in Egypt was actually also with me in Minnesota. So I, I saw on the YouTube channel that you have a bunch of videos up there, like a lot, a lot of things already that people can watch. So what are some of the things they can see? Because you mentioned about doing like experiments. Uh, yeah. I thought I might have seen some of those up there. Well, we have some of the stuff uh, over at my Mr. Scotty Roberts. Uh, you can see some of the things uh, from Egypt, some very short ones, some a little longer. Uh, there's some I still haven't even put up yet uh, from travels in Egypt. Uh uh, so you'll see some of that going down the Nile. 
uh, watching how many Egyptians does it take to lift a uh, outhouse onto a boat. Mm, sounds like fun. Uh, you know, to move upstream. Um, uh, there's all kinds of uh, fun. There's a few family things on there. You'll see some sh- uh, some of the videos of Rocky and John and I out in the Greenwood, out looking for this uh, old farm for boys and uh, fi- finding it and finding it. Uh, some uh, EVPs and things like that. Um, the witch's cave down there in the quarry and in Faribault, um, which we actually, I think I explained it well enough in the write-up for the video. We had a, You'll see John, he's way down in the corner, and he's going like this, you know, cut, cut. And we cut, and he said he was getting information that uh, we shouldn't be there. And uh, uh, so we stopped filming, and there was some interesting s- stuff that took place that day. So you'll see a lot of that. Uh, you'll see a few family things in there. Uh, there. You'll see a couple of times where I pontificate and get a little preachy, uh, talked a bit on uh, relationships and marriage. And I was, you know, we used to do this in college uh, when we were going to talk about something. We were grounding ourselves from the thunder, the lightning. He's holding his thumb to his so head whenever with his I pinky get preachy, up, just always, for the audience that can't see you. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> Because it almost looked like the symbol for grounding right. in electrical. In right. oh. So we would ground ourselves to make sure we weren't the first ones to get zapped by the the, the bolt of lightning from the heavens. Uh, so uh, uh, there's a little pontificating on there. Uh, there's some fun stuff on there. I think there's there's got to be about 30 videos up there right now. Now, one thing about Scotty is that he never shies away from an argument or discussion. Now, you're friends with him on Facebook, so wouldn't you agree with that, Wendy? I have seen many very heated discussions in his uh, Facebook threads. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I agree. He's willing to take on any topic, and, and I think he listens to every side of the story, so I, I will say that... Yeah, he's got, and he's very articulate. That is true. He's well known, though, for his conservative bent, and he isn't afraid to share it. <laughs> but one thing I like about him, I've heard him say that being offended is a choice. And that's one that he chooses against so that he can engage in any kind of conversation. Uh, he's not afraid to be the devil's advocate, and he definitely isn't afraid to defend his position. So the track this week is inspired by Scotty, and it's dedicated to his willingness to rise to the challenge and be anyone's debate partner. <laughs> I mean, when you go from the theological seminary to writing about reptilians, you know you're okay with intellectual leaps. <laughs> that's a so fact. Here's our sunspot track this week. It's called Cry Wolf. Oh, 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 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, Wendy, you know what's right around the corner? What's that, Mike? Well, July 25th is right around the corner, and I'm excited about this July 25th. You are? Why are you so excited about it? Because it's our Patreon hangout. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I'm excited for it, too. So if you guys um, don't know what our Patreon Hangout is, that's where we hang out with the people who are participating in our Patreon community, Whoa. which are the people who decide to help out to see you on the other side podcast financially for as little as $1 a month. They get some of the cool benefits, and as little as $3 a month, we can all hang out and talk together, suggest uh, podcast ideas, topics. We talk about the latest paranormal news. Some of the stuff we talk about is influencing the uh, paranormal newsletter that I know a lot of you read, hundreds of you read every single week. And so uh, we're doing a hangout where we hang out with everybody, and that's next Wednesday, July 25th, and you can be part of that. Oh, I can't remember what the name of the place to go is. Wendy, where are the people supposed to go? Oh, let me help you, Mike. It's othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Oh, my God. And we <laughs> hope to see you there so you can be part of the Patreon Hangout. And um, we would be remiss if we didn't thank Dr. Ned. Dr. Ned, thank you. Yes, we love you, Dr. Ned. He's at the Patreon level where he gets a shout out in every single episode. So if you'd like to be part of that exclusive community, please check out othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And here is the EVP for your listening pleasure. Wait, that sounded cheesy. Hold on. For your listening pleasure. <laughs> That's the creeper <laughs> voice. Spooky. Hi, paranormal fans. <laughs>